Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. Welcome back, addicts. We are continuing our Nico Jenkins conversation, and we got some crazy shit to get into this week, so I just kind of want to get right into it. Our drink of choice this week is going to be an iced Milky Way mocha. Super delicious, really caramely. Love it. Uh, We are shouting out Annette F., Tara V., and Jessica D. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated it, so we wanted to thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all the support you guys have been giving us with our podcast, and we love you guys so much. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you will find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find our delicious coffee recipes, and there's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to the cart and check out. This process will help support our show, and it does not cost you anything extra. So throughout these hearings, we have learned that his family has been involved by way of either testimony or being charged with the crimes associated with him in the murder spree. And I'm just wondering, like, do we have information about his family that we can talk about? Because that is usually not a family activity to go out and kill people. But for him, it seems like this is. So what do we know about his family? Yeah, I I actually have a lot of information on them. So much that I was trying to determine what was even important. So <laughs> there's so, so, so much out there. But check this out. I mean, this this ancestry line is insane. So stick with me here. So the Levering family is known for their longstanding good reputation. And they were a highly respected family in Omaha, Nebraska. This was, of course, Jenkins' ancestry on his mother's side. So one of their ancestors, Levi Levering, was the town's tribal leader with his influence reaching as far as Washington, D.C. back in the 1800s, which was a big deal at the time, right? However, the tables turned and the clan recorded many violent and criminal acts, which include child neglect, drug abuse, theft, and obviously, as we know, murder. Um, A report by the World Herald revealed that 38 descendants of Leverings have been found guilty of about 633 criminal offenses in the past four or five decades. And that doesn't include those offenses that ended in, you know, mistrials or drop charges or, you know, dismiss charges or acquittals or whatever. So let's take a look at a quick list of just his immediate family and those that were involved. And I think a good place to start here is with his mother. So Lori Jenkins is currently being housed in the Nebraska correction center for women. This is stemming from her son's murder spree. Of course, Lori was charged with two counts of accessory to murder and was sentenced to eight to 10 years for one of those counts and 20 to 24 months consecutive on the second one for a total term of eight years and 20 months to 10 years and 24 months. Which is silly because, you know, 24 months is two years. But anyway, essentially, like, if you round up, it's almost 10 to 12 years. But the reason those months are important is because of parole eligibility. But anyway, so she is not eligible for parole until the year 2027. But her current projected release date, if she doesn't make any type of parole with the credits that she currently has, is March 20th of 2028. Let's move into his father. So David McGee served two stints in prison. 
The first was in 1998, beginning on October 7th. He had been convicted of theft by receiving stolen property and sentenced to one year. He was subsequently released on October 22nd of that same year, so only a couple of weeks later, on a mandatory discharge. So what I'm assuming happened here and in circumstances like this is that he committed the crime and was in custody for a long duration before he was actually convicted. So when he was convicted, he was given that credit for time served. So then he was released because he had already basically served out those credits prior to even being convicted. His second bout was in 2004, starting on July 31st, when he was convicted of terroristic threats and sentenced to a minimum of one year, eight months to a maximum of four years. He was again released on a mandatory discharge two years later on July 26, 2006. He later died in 2009, and this is from unknown causes. I could not find what actually killed him. His obituary is very vague. His death certificate was not available, and in all of the media releases and everything like that, it just said that he had passed it and it say what caused it. Uh, at this point, with this family, I wouldn't be surprised if... It wasn't a drug overdose or, I mean, I don't know if he had a drug problem, but I want to be surprised if it wasn't something promiscuous. He wasn't like an old man or anything. So I don't think he died of age. He could have had some medical concerns. I'm not really sure. So moving into his siblings, Sophia, the oldest sister, she does have a criminal record of a few misdemeanors. They're mostly drug related offenses, though. And uh, she has two children and they're being raised by their father at this point. She doesn't have any recorded jobs that I could find that she's currently working or anything like that. I couldn't really figure out what she's doing exactly right now, but uh, she is staying out of the news and the media. So she currently isn't in prison. Uh, I couldn't figure out exactly what she's doing right now, but what I do know is that she was not in prison. So more pro-social than the rest of her family, I would say. So then let's move on to Melanie Jenkins. She has three children, and at least one of those children has special needs. And as far as I could find, they seem to be in her custody, but I think that that's kind of gone back and forth over the years. From what we could find, she's non-social media or making any recent headlines. While Melanie is not currently in custody, along with her mother, sister, and brother, she has served time before. This was starting on July 13th, 2006, for the charge of attempted robbery, where she was sentenced to 48 years. Then she added on an attempted escape charge, where they tacked on another year that was consecutive to her other charge, making a grand total of her time five to nine years. She was released on August 14th, 2011, and this was again on a mandatory discharge. There were also reports that she was in custody for terroristic threats, just like her father, but I couldn't find those records. So she may have been arrested on it and maybe even convicted of it, but it didn't escalate to her serving prison time. Erica is the youngest full sibling in the Jenkins crew, and she has one child. This is the one that she was pregnant with during the trial proceedings on this case. So obviously not in her custody. Um... This one is really interesting. According to the Nebraska prison system, Erica legally changed her name to, okay, I'm going to say this and then I'll spell it, Illuminati e Goddess Inigo Prestige. So E-L-U-M-I-N-A-T-I-E-G-O-D-D-E-S-S-E-N-I-K-K-O-P-R-I-S-T-I-G-E. So that is her legal name. She is currently housed in the same facility as her mother in the Nebraska Correction Center for Women, where she's serving a life sentence that began on November 6, 2014. Her crimes and sentences are as follows. Two counts of robbery, and they convicted her as a habitual criminal, so that carries a weight of 30 to 50 years each. One count of used firearm to commit felony, which carries a weight of 40 to 50 years. Possession of deadly weapon by prohibited person, which carries a weight of 40 to 50 years. One count of assault on officer in the third degree, which carries a weight of one year. Two counts of assault on an officer or health worker in the third degree, which one carries a weight of one to four years. One carries a weight of one to two years. 
Um, and then she has assault by a confined person, which carries a weight of 20 to 40 years. And then she's also, so obviously those last ones she picked up while she was in custody. And then she's also on for murder in the first degree because they convicted her in this case. So that carries a weight of life. And as a note, all of those counts run consecutive to each other. So she would have to serve her life term first, then a 30 to 50 years, then another 30 to 50, then another 40 to 50. So unless this girl lives to be like 700 years old, she's never getting out of prison. Then the last sibling, Lori Sales, she reports that she had a great childhood and was super spoiled. Her biological father is Patrick Sales, and he died when she was a baby, so she actually considered David McGee to be her father. She was attending Metropolitan Community College at one point before she was charged with accessory to felony in connection with the Jenkins murder spree. However, she never served time in prison for this. So whether she got that charge or not, she didn't end up doing any hard time for sure. Let's move on to his uncle. That seems like a good place to go next. This is all over the place. So Warren Levering, that would be his mother's brother and is also a felon. He has served time in prison in both Oklahoma and Nebraska. Investigators said he fathered seven children with six different women in five states. It was wild. Like, these statistics are crazy. And this is just an example. Like, his whole family's like this. <laughs> so, prosecutors charged him as an accessory in the murder of Andrea, which is one of Jenkins' victims. Authorities said that Levering helped Jenkins get rid of Andrea's car and tried to set it on fire. Prosecutors said Levering got the gas can from his sister's house. Okay, and then going back to before this, on September 3rd of 1980, he was convicted of two counts of burglary and one count of escape. He was sentenced to a total sentence of six years and was released on December 4th, 1986 on a mandatory discharge. Currently, he is serving a 40-year sentence that began on February 26, 2016 for the charges of accessory to murder and attempted robbery in relation to Jenkins' murder spree, which each carry a weight of 20 years consecutive to each other. He is projected to be released on August 1st of 2033. Now let's talk really quickly about his ex-wife. Uh, she was his wife at the time, Shalonda Jenkins. In 2010, Jenkins and fiance Shalonda tied the knot while he was incarcerated at the Tecumseh State Prison. The majority of their marriage, one or both of them, was incarcerated. In looking at Shalonda's prison rap sheet, she was incarcerated in 2013, starting on March 4th, when convicted of possession of deadly weapon by a prohibited person, carrying a two-year sentence, and of shoplifting $1,500 to $5,000, which carried a 20-month sentence to run concurrent with the weapon charge. She was released on May 31st, 2013, only three months later, on a discretionary parole. Then, on April 13th, 2015, she was convicted of terroristic threats with a sentence of one to two years, resisting arrest with the sentence of one consecutive year, and theft by shoplifting with a sentence of one concurrent year. So in total, the sentence on that one was one to three years. She was released on March 2nd, 2016 on a discretionary parole. On March 2nd of 2020, so same day, four years later, she was again convicted of two counts of theft by shoplifting and sentenced to one year for each charge to run consecutively. She was released on March 11th, 2022. So as we record this, only a few months following her release, there are no additional arrests to add to this list according to the prison system, but... Who knows if there will be more in the future. In 2017, Jenkins and Shalonda finalized their divorce. So in review of their relationship, he was in custody when they got married. Then she was in custody at the same time, but was out just before he was released for the first prison term. And that was short-lived, as we know, because then he was arrested only a few weeks later. And overall... That means that they only spent a few weeks free out of prison during their seven-year marriage. However, the drama keeps going. She did have a child with another man while still married to Jenkins and does not have custody of that child. Jenkins also had many girlfriends and women claiming to be his wife throughout his and Shalonda's marriage. And, I mean, we even talked about the one that was involved of, like, who provided him the weapon at all, Sherry. 
um, who he was showering with, who was fighting with Shalonda about all of this. I mean, there are plenty of women that were lining up and showing interest towards Nico Jenkins. So he is not innocent in this either. And it sounds to me, honestly, like neither one of them could afford the divorce process. So on paper, they were married, but they most certainly did not act like it. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's just what it sounds like to me. Okay, so the last person that I'll talk about for now is Don Arguello. So while some of us have been unsuccessful in finding a relationship in the free world, Jenkins has managed to woo a girl and is reportedly engaged. Unlike everyone else in his life, Don does not have a criminal record of being incarcerated in the Nebraska prison system, and she also doesn't have face tattoos. They met when she visited the prison as a volunteer for a nonprofit inmate advocacy group. Eventually, this morphed into her visiting him during his visitation hours, and they fell in love. He now has her name tattooed across his face. Remember those tattoos I said were tatted over all of the other jargon? One of them across his cheek says Dawn, D-A-W-N. She says, quote, he's not what the media has made him out to be. He's an enigma. He has feelings. He's very sensitive. He's very intelligent. And yes, he's very manipulating, end quote. Okay, well, that answers my question about the family history. So thanks for (laughs) going over that. There's a whole lot there. There's like pictures out there of his family tree. And in some of them, it'll say who the person is. Then it'll give like a brief description underneath them. And of course, that doesn't, you know, that's not the entire person's whole life story. It's just like, did they serve time? Do they have kids? Like that kind of stuff. Man, I got stuck reading that thing for so long because there's so many of them and it's so interesting because they're all doing their own thing, but none of it is good things. I mean, it's it was it was definitely an experience. That is so interesting. In looking at Jenkins' mental health, there have been a variety of diagnoses over the years and we've touched on some of them, but I'm just basically going to go over them again. So the previous diagnoses are schizophrenic, bipolar, ADHD, antisocial and borderline personality disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, functional urethus nocturnal, schizoaffective versus bipolar disorder, and PTSD. And his current diagnoses are antisocial personality disorder, so mixed features, antisocial, narcissistic, and borderline malingering, secondary gain, polysubstance dependence by history, and PTSD by history. Okay, Casey, if you don't mind, I'm going to take that list and bunny trail off of that because I know that this is a true crime podcast and we are here to speak on the murders and the horrendous crimes, but part of it is trying to understand how did we get here? Like, why is Nico Jenkins killing people? And I think that... There is so much about his mental health that we have to talk about this, but I do want to remind our listeners that, I mean, I do have a degree in this, but I'm not a doctor. So this is just, you know, our thoughts basically on the whole mental health thing. So since you just went over the list, I think this is a good part to just kind of talk about that for a second. So on the surface to somebody like briefly reading about this case, it may seem as though Nico Jenkins was showing all the warning signs that he would do something drastic upon release. Like why would you let him out? Obviously he's going to go do something drastic. He has done it his whole life, you know, like that may look pretty apparent, but when you look deeper into his life, his time incarcerated, his patterns of behavior, his unpredictability, his time in restrictive housing, the area becomes less black and white, I would say, and more of like a gray area. And here's why. So with a person like Jenkins, it can be difficult to decipher what is bravado and attention seeking versus a legitimate health concern or threat. So with that in mind, it's harder to predict the types of crimes he may commit and the likelihood of him actually committing them because he's doing lots of threatening, but not necessarily always acting out. And sometimes he's acting out and not even making those threats. And then later is claiming all the mental health stuff as like an excuse for the behavior. So it's hard to predict because it's ever changing. He 
did spend quite a bit of time in solitary confinement. So I think some of this may be chalked up to that. And he's using his psychosis and mental health as a way to try to gain, basically. He has experienced genuine episodes of psychosis and anxiety in between his malingering behaviors, you know. So some of them may be fraudulent, but some of them are definitely legitimate as well. So, like I said, it becomes confusing for professionals to know when to take him seriously and when to recognize that he's doing it superficially for personal gain. So this seemingly meant that when he had genuine health concerns and a genuine need for appropriate treatment, much of his pleading went unheard or it was downplayed. So when it counted, he didn't get the help that he needed to the full extent. Basically, the boy who cried wolf for anybody that knows what I'm talking about. When considering how much time Jenkins had spent in restrictive housing as a young developing adult, roughly three and a half years or so, and also taking into account that research shows the detrimental effect it can have on a person psychologically, that is definitely going to play a role, right? So to support the restrictive housing didn't have a prolonged negative impact on his mental health would honestly make no sense based on the evidence that we have and the studies that have been conducted that show the impacts of prolonged isolation on inmates. So it definitely, I think, plays a role. Um, This is a man who has come from a traumatic background, who showed symptoms of anxiety and PTSD from a very young age. There would have been basically no way of him faking bedwetting for gain at the age of eight, for example. Um, It's... And it's on record multiple times that he had paranoid thoughts that have been continually present throughout his life. So in this regard, it's already established that he was suffering mental health issues as a child leading into his adulthood that were affecting him consciously and subconsciously, meaning in some cases he wasn't always using his illness for gain. So, I mean, I think this kind of goes back to what we had commented on earlier about that he had to transition into adulthood while in custody and then was released with no life experience, skills, or knowledge. Do you want to add on to that? Yeah, actually. So one of the key things in Jenkins' behavior that cannot be dismissed is his awareness of manipulation. So this is one of those things that showed his thinking is somewhat structured and premeditated despite some of his ideas and beliefs seeming delusional. It showed that he was able to identify what types of behaviors got him the results he desired from others. For example, using or exaggerating a psychotic episode for personal gain. This suggests during these periods of time, he is aware of his actions and the impacts or responses that they can have. And it also shows he understands what behaviors are deemed as socially acceptable and sane versus what ones are deemed insane or unacceptable. This is clear manipulative behavior indicative of someone with a personality disorder rather than a condition like schizophrenia. The murders that he committed were all shootings. They were quick. There was no attempt to clear up the crime scene and seemingly random with no real care for covering his crimes. They all occurred outside in the public and Jenkins had accomplices, all of whom were relatives of his. His murders were opportunistic in nature rather than thoroughly planned. He seemed to have some idea of the things he wanted to achieve in regards to his crimes, but no real structured way of achieving them. For example, the fourth victim, Andrea Kruger, was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. He had no grudges against her. He didn't know her. He just chose her as the target because she was there, easily accessible, and happened to have something that he needed, which was her vehicle. Yeah, I mean, all of that really does kind of lay out his mental health and definitely no disregard to the fact that those diagnoses do exist and that they may or may not pertain to him, but it's difficult to determine, you know, based off of his inconsistencies. So the Unforbidden Truth podcast conducted an interview with Jenkins. This was long and detailed and 
but it was basically his account of everything from himself to his childhood to the crimes themselves to his mental health just everything so i won't discuss every bit of that in detail because that would just be all another episode but here are some of the aspects that casey and i found really interesting in this interview first one of the things that i noticed right away that in listening to him speak just throughout the entire interview, it is apparent that he claims to know every date, name, officer, badge number, therapist, evaluator, doctor, conspirator, detention centers, hospitals, board members, Greek mythology characters, disorders and diagnoses, brain functions, law references, state senators, etc. I mean, literally, this man is... I mean, he's... He's either somebody with an impeccable memory or he has recited this enough times. It's basically the only thing that he knows anymore, which may be in his favor because he has stuck to the same story and explanation throughout history. But it also could be difficult for authorities and evaluators when he's trying to convince them something is factual that he has repeated to himself and anyone who will listen. So he may have quite literally talked himself into believing that it's true, even if it's not factual at all. So he sticks to his guns on these topics and claims for them to all be true, along with some conspiracies. But I wonder sometimes as he's talking, I'm sitting here kind of wondering to myself if he's basically just talked himself into believing these things over the years. And there may be another side of that truth, but it's never going to be revealed because to him, this is his reality. This is his truth. and. His memory of reality may be long gone if this isn't true, you know, it's just kind of interesting to think about because if you went and listened to this two part interview, which is on YouTube, if you go and listen to it, I mean, just pay attention to how he speaks and the words that he chooses and how he answers questions and communicates with the interviewer and just everything. He's just, he's very cocky. I'll say that. Next, let's discuss his father. So Jenkins says his father gave him positive attention for negative behavior. He would reinforce aggressiveness and dominant behavior. And when Jenkins began getting help and was put on medications, and this was like as a child, he said that it mellowed him out and his father didn't approve of that. So he told his mother to stop taking Jenkins to therapy and stop giving him the medication. So she listened to him and did that out of fear for his father, according to Jenkins. Next, I want to discuss his mental health and self-harming behaviors. So this is a trigger warning. When he was asked to comment on, quote, Apophis and the goddesses he hears, the first thing that Jenkins said to the interviewer was correcting him in the pronunciation of Apophis. So that was something I thought was interesting. Like he still, it showed to me, he still feels some sort of like, connection or ownership or protection against Apophis just based on the fact that he was correcting him on how to say it. You know, um, he said that as early as he can remember, he was five when he heard the demons or voices in his head and that they would encourage negative, chaotic criminal behaviors, but he didn't know what they were. Then he claims when he was in solitary confinement at age 21 or 22, they revealed themselves to him stating and I'm going to repeat this the way that he said it the best I can. Quote, my whole life, they have been monitoring me and telling me that I'm their sacred king and that I'm supposed to resurrect the uh, kingdom of Hot Shipsuit, Queen Hot Shipsuit, the Egyptian queen. Because I guess she was like the first Egyptian queen that was a witch. Like she used to work, uh, she was of the grimoire and like the underworld and said she was believed to to control the demons and they said that the demons told me that i have sacred egyptian royalty bloodline of the kingdom of queen hot suit 1452 bc and i started doing blood rituals blood magic and stuff like that and worshiping her end quote a prison psychiatrist indicated jenkins has aggressive and homicidal ideation and indicated he is a danger to others they recommended that to reduce his agitation and delusional behavior, that he be placed on an involuntary medication order or IMO. 
containing injectable psychiatric medication because he doesn't comply with voluntary oral psychiatric medication regimens. He struggles with self-mutilation on occasion, but has not harmed anyone since being on this regimen since his second and final arrest. With regards to his self-harming and self-mutilation episodes, he was asked if they were suicide attempts. And his answer was that when he slit his throat, those were suicide attempts. Now we have to talk about the next part because it was all throughout the media and maybe how some people know of this case. But uh, if you have a penis, you may want to sit down for this part. Jenkins had multiple penis mutilation episodes. A guard who observed one incident and did the paperwork wrote that Jenkins self-mutilated his penis and self-cannibalized his own penis by putting his finger through the flesh of the hole, pulled flesh out, and consumed it. There were multiple times he has mutilated his penis. Once was even rumored to be with the edge of a correction officer's badge, which he somehow acquired and shouldn't have. Um, but Jenkins strikes me as <laughs> one kid in school that everyone would dare to do wild things because you know that they're going to do it. You know, they would never say no to like a dare or something. They're like the daredevil class clown type person. That's who Jenkins like strikes me as. Cause that is excessive. Like that's crazy. Re regardless of whether he hears things or not, like that's gotta be so painful. I mean, I don't have a penis, but damn, that's gotta hurt. So moving on with regards to the murder of the two men on August 11th, he claims to have been sleeping during the day because he was quote nocturnal at night. And I think that he probably got that from his, diagnoses being functional enuresis nocturnal that basically just means that you wet the bed at night <laughs> that's what that means so uh i think that's probably where he jumped to the description of being nocturnal but i don't know that's anybody's guess so on that day while he was awake he said that he was chanting in a psychotic, delusional state, ranting about human sacrifice and that the revelation was upon us. He gave a sample of speaking in tongues and what those chants would sound like. He also said he was working out because his body had to be in condition to destroy as a soldier of Apophis. He says this was the same story and routine that happened on all of the days that he committed murders. During the interrogation, he said he doesn't remember much, but knows he was mistreated. For example, they gave him coffee and did so on purpose because coffee without medication triggers delusions, according to him. He says the media played a big role in this case, but they got a bunch of things wrong, such as they are portraying him to be a monster, but he's really not. He says the media also claimed that his mother purchased him bullets when she didn't, and that his sister was not with him for any of the murders. He claims to have remorse for the crimes, but says it was all because of his mental health issues and could have been avoided if he was treated while he was in prison the first time. What he wants the world to know is, quote, this was a governmental Nebraska conspiracy of this one man to deny him mental health treatment based off racism, based off of discrimination, because of what, who I was, and I, I committed violent acts towards them in their prison systems, end quote. He claims he is supposed to be in a psychiatric state hospital, not in prison on death row, and that he is trying to bring awareness to mental health for other inmates because he is not the monster the system built him to be. And that was all built through conspiracies that he claims were exposed. He recommends art therapy and music therapy to occupy the brain to avoid and prevent psychotic episodes. He also says to embrace and seek the higher powers because they are real and can help you heal. He says that we are all gods and goddesses that can embrace healing if we choose to and to find a solid support system, seek out good mental health treatment and stay away from the bad mental health treatment that's out there because he has experience with that. So that's all according to him and some information that we took out of the interview that he conducted with the Unforbidden Truth podcast. Instead of a traditional article this week, I am going to read you a letter written by Nico Jenkins dated November 3rd, 2013. 
It was written to the Omaha World Herald attempting to get his intentions out to the world when he felt like he wasn't being heard and changing his plea. And just please bear with me on this. Um, it is a handwritten letter. He does not have the best um, spelling punctuation. He has random capital letters. and So I'm going to do the best I can, but keep that in mind. There's zero punctuation. So it's a little bit difficult. <laughs> It says, I, Nico Allen Jenkins, come to you now in a request to please help me help the victims' families of my crimes. Get closure and please not be exposed to more misery and suffering sorrows of a trial. I wish to plead guilty to all counts in case number CR13-2768, CR13-2769, murders and weapons charges. I've wrote my judge in the district court of Douglas County, the prosecutor Don Klein, as well as my attorney Scott Sladek to plead guilty. My attorney is continuously hindering me in the process, inefficiently representing me. Please help me. I never wished for anyone to be killed. I only wanted help. Psychiatric treatment. If Nebraska Department of Correction would have professionally civil commitment petitioned to the Mental Health Board under number 71908, Nebraska State Mental Health Professionals failed psychologists and psychiatric to take legal action as I requested to be hospitalized numerous times. They had full knowledge of apothesis and demonic forces. Please help me get a hearing. My judge is Bapalian. The victim's families do not deserve to see the brutal nature their family members were killed in crime scene photos that will be largely displayed at trial. Andrea Kruger's husband does not deserve to see his wife face down bloody in the middle of the road like some piece of roadkill with holes in her head. I've repented my sins to God and I beg for his mercy and grace to forgive me. Yet Jesus is convicting me to spare these families traumatization of seeing the brutal facts of what a mentally ill schizophrenic did to their family. I want to plead guilty to all counts. Please help me. Thank you. Signed, Nico Allen Jenkins. That letter is so interesting on so many levels. I mean, we've hinted at this letter quite a bit throughout and referenced it. So I think it's cool that you decided to read that this week. Thank you for that. So I only have a couple extra things I want to say this week. And one of them kind of goes back to his family. I know we talked a bit about like where each of them are at and what they're doing and where they came from. And I told you that their family tree is crazy. But when you start diving into the genealogical makeup of their family, it's clear that it's extensive and convoluted. Especially when you're talking about that, like, you know, like his dad was sleeping with both his mom and his aunt, who was like on the other side of the family from a different set of kids. And anyway, it gets really confusing. But basically, um, you can see that that starts mixing things up. And obviously, he's not necessarily like blood family, but once they start procreating children, you know, he starts to become a part of the family tree. And then like now you're sleeping with different people within that tree and making new kids. And it's just, it gets so convoluted, but that's not why we're here. So, um, I just wanted to share a quick example to just give you a taste of what we found in our research and why this became so difficult. So the example I'm going to give is Jenkins' mother, Lori, she has, it's kind of funny, she has four brothers. It's her and four brothers. And then it's funny because she had Nico and four sisters, uh, who has four sisters. So anyway, it's kind of funny, but um, they're all criminals. So let's talk about one of her brothers that is a criminal, but completely unrelated to this case and has no connection to Nico's crimes. So this uncle is his mother's brother, who's five years younger than her. His name is Merwin Levering. In 1989, at the age of 18, he shot a man. He was in and out of prison for most of his adult life. And in 1993, he was caught with a car stolen from then-governor Ben Nelson's garage. He was also arrested in 1999 for punching a woman. 
After kicking out the police cruiser's window and escaping, he was found hiding in a doghouse. He was later convicted of felony escape and two additional misdemeanors. So currently, he is 15 years into a 21-year federal prison sentence for firearms offenses. This guy is all over the map, but I thought that was interesting. Like, the then-governor Ben Nelson's car, and he took it out of his garage. Like, that's wild and i think it also just displays an example to show that you know it's not like everybody has an addiction in their family like they're all violent crimes you know they're all beating on the women they're all murdering people they're hurting people uh they're all carrying firearms it's it's a dangerous family tree that's for sure but i will follow that up by saying that not all members of the family were criminals and the ones that were not, I'm sure, are pro-social members of society and probably do not necessarily like to claim that they are a part of this family would be my guess. But the ones that are criminals, they definitely made an impact on society, to say the least. And the last thing that I want to say is that Jenkins' first release from prison is one of several that have prompted the state to reconsider its supervised release programs. So two bills introduced by Senator Brad Ashford of Omaha on the topic were passed by the Nebraska legislature in 2014. One of those would provide more supervision for former inmates and another would create programs that help them transition back into society. So I thought that was kind of cool. Okay, and then working our way into our discussion questions, I do have a few of them for you today. So the first one, during the commission of the offense, do you believe that he remembers what happened and do you think that he was aware of his actions at that time? He's claiming that he doesn't even remember what happened, but he just knows that Apophis told him to do it. Do you think that that's true or false? Like, do you think he remembered or he didn't know? That is such a good question. I I feel like he did. I feel like he did remember and he was aware. Um, I think that he yeah. might make these claims for various reasons that he doesn't remember. But I do think that if he did some soul-ish searching. <laughs> Yikes. That sounds scary in this case, huh? <laughs> what's supposed to be a soul um i think that he would (laughs) that we would come to find out that he really does remember and he does know whether he's distancing himself from it or whatever the case might be i feel like it's a fabricated claim yeah i really think like i truly see it as a way for him to like separate himself from the crimes you know so like saying like yes i did them but i I wasn't in my right state of mind so that he like You know, because he he talks about, like, Jesus in his letter, but then he's also worshipping Apophis, who is the exact opposite of that, you know, in his Egyptian god, you know? So it's like, you're kind of, like, driving two different paths depending on what you think is going to benefit you the most, you know what I mean? And so it's like, okay, well, I'm going to drive down this path so far towards jesus and saying you know okay i'm going to take full responsibility for my actions but then you're going to jump ship into the other lane and be like but it was because apophis told me so you know what i mean it's like he's still like not cutting ties either way like he's not cutting ties with jesus and he's not cutting ties with apophis he's trying to take both paths is kind of what it sounds like to me and so this is the way that he does that by admitting guilt and doing the right thing but also not taking responsibility for it just because of his state of mind. Like Apophis told him to do it. You know what I mean? In some of those hearings, you know, in court and stuff like that, he's just so focused on like the details, you know, like the state would say something about like, he jumped out behind the bushes. He's like, that's a lie. I didn't jump out behind the bushes. Like he's very worried about the details of specifically what happened. But then you ask him like, do you remember your actions? And he's like, no. But then he like, comes to after the fact and he's like oh there was just a body laying there i don't know so you blacked out for just that small segment of time nothing before or after 
and then you're yeah, going to claim true. that that's the responsibility of Apophis. You know what I mean? Yeah, that seems pretty far-fetched in my opinion, but... I mean, right. Okay. And we talk about him as a spree murderer. That's fine, right? Because these people had no connection to him except for Curtis Bradford, who he had, like, served time with. I read in a few places that he was his cellmate. I couldn't confirm that. But one way or the other, like, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, right? Curtis wasn't at that time, right? He was incarcerated. But... Um, that was like his associate everybody else completely random never seen them before never met them before and that right there designates him as a spree murder but what i would like to note is that all of those incidents took place multiple days apart and at different times of the day and different people were there different people were there on the different days the way he got to and from those crime scenes was different. And the way that he even carried out the commission of the fence was different. He didn't kill all of them exactly the same way. Or even with the same weapon. It was similar, but it wasn't the same. So you're going to sit here and tell me that he did the exact same thing every single time. It wasn't thought out or nothing. It was just like, oh, today I'm going to walk down the street and oh, boom, you're dead. Okay, next. Like, no, that doesn't make any sense. And then he was trying to evade the police and initially was not cooperating at all. Uh, he was even trying to frame his own family members before accepting any responsibility. And all of those things to me just don't scream innocent or even not guilty by way of insanity you know what i mean i to me that just doesn't scream like help you know what i mean it's like yeah. very those are all very guilty behaviors by right. somebody who knows exactly what's going on i concur and at the same time he showed no remorse and no willingness to assist the police in the investigation until he came up with the idea of an insanity plea and thought maybe he would be able to finesse his way out of that. So he came up with that idea. But then when they determined that he was fit to stay in trial, it was like he just threw that idea out the window. He still could have pled not guilty by way of insanity and went that route. I mean, he still could have done that. He, you know, would have had a trial and all of that. And he chose not to do that. And he was saying, I mean, even like the judge said, he knew exactly what was going on in those hearings. He was, speaking about how he felt that his constitutional rights were being violated and all that stuff. If you were insane, how would you know that? You know, right. if you didn't know what was going on, how would you be able to communicate that you felt what was going on wasn't right? Because you know yeah. what's going on. That means you're not insane, you know, as far as like, are you fit to stand trial or not? Like, do you know what's going on? Right, right, right. So I don't know. I think he knew. And I, I truly think that had they not caught him, he would have continued on. Oh, a hundred percent. I think he felt like a badass or something like, yeah, I killed somebody else today. Cool. They haven't caught me yet. And it's like, well, and he's like, I told these people, I warned them. Yep. You know? Yep. It was like an, it was like a big fuck you. I told you so to the Nebraska prison systems. I asked for mental help. You're not going to give it to me. So... I'm going to force you to listen. You know? It was all an elaborate you. scheme to, yeah. to, to, sue the, to sue the system for some... A lot of money. And then it was funny yeah. because in his interview, he was saying something along the lines of like, oh, I didn't really think I'd get that money. Well, okay. You filed the lawsuit before you were even convicted, bro. <laughs> I don't understand. It's just a mess. Like, <laughs> I don't know. So I guess that kind of ties into my qu my next one, which was, in your opinion, I'm, I've kind of voiced my opinion to you. Do you think that he was competent to stand trial? Yes. I think, okay. So I'm just going to go back to, like, he knew right from wrong, right? And he, he was able to d make the determination that his constitutional rights were being violated. And he... I mean, he was able to, like, verbalize the information and that he knew, and he was also able to write it down. He wrote a bunch of different things, legal yeah. paperwork, mm -hmm. and also um, 
statements to the media and all that sort of stuff to judges, everything. And so I feel like just based on that alone, like, I think that he was, I think that he was able to stand trial. I also want to point out something. You were talking about how he knew everybody, right? Every person who had given him a evaluation, every corrections officer, every everything, right? Correct. How easy would it have been for him to check out a book from the library to read up on these mental diagnoses and their symptoms and side effects and stuff like that and put on a show i mean he was able to remember all these people dates times places everything like that how easy would it have been to remember the symptoms of different mental illnesses so that he could turn around and claim those mental illnesses and then put on like almost like a performance like for example one that uh, a symptom from a mental illness or mental disease that is fairly common is we'll take bipolar. For example, one of the main symptoms is that you can have severe mood swings, right? Mm-hmm. Manic episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So he could remember that and then just be like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to like have super crazy, wild, like really dramatic mood swings. And then I'm going to just claim, see, because of that, Mm-hmm. I have bipolar. So he's almost doing something and then being like, because I just did that, that means that I have this mental illness. And so that's right. almost what it seems like to me because he was able to remember like all those places, dates, times, all those things, people. Um, yeah. I feel like he's like, we were talking about his IQ and it's not very good, but I feel like he's smart enough to remember the symptoms as well. I mean, as- this is literally the only thing in the world that matters to him. He doesn't care what our gas prices are like. He doesn't care what, you know, the weather's like outside. Like, he doesn't care, you know, none of those things that we think about on a daily basis. Paying bills, going to and from work, you know, gotta go to the grocery store, gotta make a list, gotta cook, clean, whatever. You know, like, nobody will know what this is like unless you've been in prison. But not only is he in prison, he's been there like his whole life, damn near. Right. You know? Right. And so what does he have to do? And he even said in his interview, like, yeah, I've studied, I've done extensive research on this. I know how the brain operates. Okay, well, then that means you know how to use it to your advantage as well. And one of the evaluators even said, if I want to like feed into his ideals on something, that he would change it up. He would try to dramatize the severity of his symptoms you know and wait for a reaction basically from the doctor so he said like does he have some mental disorders and mental health issues yeah probably but is it as extensive as he's trying to claim and portray probably not and i think that that's a really good way to distinguish it i'm not trying to belittle the fact i mean shit we all need therapy you know what i mean but that's not an excuse for murder Especially when he has a history of very violent behaviors and her, his perception of reality is so skewed. It's just to me, it's the same as like being drunk or high and committing a murder. So you may have a severe addiction or a disorder even, but you should still be held responsible for any crimes that you committed while you were under the influence. And it's not an excuse. You don't just be like, well, I was high, so that sucks and move on. Like somebody's got to be responsible for that and you're the one that did it. So, you know. <laughs> you got to be held responsible for that. And maybe in his case, he was a valid candidate to plead not guilty by way of insanity. That obviously would have taken a completely different turn than how it actually ended up. But that's at his own will. I mean, the judge was basically telling him, plead this, plead this, you know, go to trial. You have these rights. And he said, no, I want to plead guilty. Okay, well, nobody can make that determination for you except for yourself and then now he's trying to file appeals saying oh i i wasn't sane i shouldn't have entered that plea well i mean damn the judge called you back into chambers like that literally never happens (laughs) i don't know you know i don't think he understands the extent of the situation that he's got himself into because that judge gave him a thousand and one chances years of an opportunity to change uh, his mind and change his plea but he chose not to and 
he knew, you know, he was competent at the time to understand what was going on. That's that was determined for fact. And he still decided to go the route that he went. I mean, there's no way to go back on that. You know what I mean? Right, right. No, I agree. I understand that he has mental health issues and I do concur with that because, you know, especially like his self mutilation and stuff like that. I mean, that's not normal, whatever normal is. And that's not it, you know, but (laughs) was it to the extent that he doesn't even remember what happened? And so now he's not even competent to stand trial. No, I don't think so. I mean, the judge didn't think so. The prosecutor didn't think so. The evaluators didn't think so. You know, it's like, I'm not the only one. You're not the only one. But it just, to me, taking the totality of the circumstances and the preponderance of evidence, this is, you know, I don't think any appeals are ever going to go in his favor. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so I have a hypothetical question for you. So since he hasn't had any violent episodes towards others for many years now, we know he has self-harming behaviors, but he hasn't committed any violent offenses towards like the officers, like the corrections officers or the mental health staff at the prison or his fellow inmates or anything like that. So with that track record, do you believe that if he continued on this regimen of the IMO and the therapy would he be safe to release to the public? Like, let's say somehow he made parole. Would you trust him to be in the public? No. I don't either. Is that bad? (laughs) (laughs) No, because he's just like we said, he's a spree killer. So like, it doesn't even matter who it is, where it is. It doesn't matter if he feels like it, he's going to do it. And I just, I don't, I don't think he's shown any remorse, man. I got to say, I, the, the only thing that may, well, I mean, the main thing that solidifies this answer for me, because I agree with you on all of that. The main thing that solidifies it for me is that in his interview, he said that the structure that he has, as far as having his therapist available five days a week, Monday through Friday from this time, I think he said like six 30 to four. I mean, he was like literally telling us exactly what he has there and how he gets the IMO injection once a month and that he has access to more injections in the event that he feels like he's having like a psychotic break or something like that. So he has access to everything that he needs. But if he doesn't trust himself, I don't trust him. And it sounds like in his interview, he's saying, I never wanted to get out of prison. I wanted to be here to get the help that I needed. You know, all that kind of stuff. He's not asking in any of his appeals or his pleas or cries for help. None of that is he saying like, I shouldn't be here because I'm innocent. He's saying I shouldn't be here because I should be in the state hospital getting psychiatric help. So he's not asking for freedom. And so to me, that's enough to be like, you know what? If he doesn't trust himself, I don't trust him either. So I I agree with you, unfortunately, on that one. Okay, moving on to my fourth question. In your opinion, what are his motives for trying to be granted a new trial? Does he want a chance to be released someday Uh, be relocated to the state psychiatric hospital or just to remove the death penalty? Like what are his motives? Why is he trying to be granted a new trial? I think that either one of two things, I think that either he's trying to have a new trial so he can plead insanity so he can go to the state hospital or, um, I think he might just be doing it as a big F you to the department of corrections, this, the, the prosecutors, the judges. I think that he might just be like, yep, we're going to have to go through and do this again. Like, because I can sort of thing. Right. And if he's right, then he gets to say, I told you so. Exactly. You know I mean, like if he ends up like winning his case and moving to the state hospital or being released or whatever his motives are, you know, like he kind of gets to be like, haha, I told you so. This is what I've been saying the whole time. And now you guys get to be responsible for these four murders. I didn't do it. You did it. Right. 
And not just that, but like, even if he loses, I don't think he really necessarily even cares. I think it's more of like a, um, <laughs> like he sued them for how much? 24 and a half million. Like, mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, I didn't think I was going to get any of it. He was just doing it just to be an asshole, you know? And so I think that he might just be doing this just to be an asshole because it costs the state how much money to put on a trial, you know? Like, so it's like, I think it might just be a big, like, F you one more time because he can. (laughs) And he's never contributed anything to society that's pro-social. You know what I mean? Like, he's never held a job. He's never paid taxes. He's never done any of those things. Yet, taxpayers, like you and me, are paying for him to do all of these things. And so he's just, again, tormenting society. I mean, I truly believe that he knows he's going to be in for life because he knows he has the death penalty and he he knows he's not going anywhere and he has ruined his case by admitting guilt so many times and like all the things right he has like completely destroyed his case like we said before like he's probably never getting any type of appeal granted towards him right but i think what he's hoping for is just a more comfortable lifestyle which he would obtain if he were in a state hospital versus a prison So I truly think his motives on top of the big F you, like I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think it's also like, you know, let me out of here so I can get to a hospital. So, you know, people can come and visit me more and all that kind of stuff, you know, because obviously easier to escape. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously being in a situation like that for life. I mean, if you had to choose, would you pick a cell or a, a room, you know? Right. So. To me, that's what I think. I think he knows he's stuck. He's just trying to do his time somewhere else. That's what I think. Like a more comfortable lifestyle, which I don't even know how he knows what that is. You know what I mean? At this point, he has been in right. his in a jail cell and even solitary confinement and all of that kind of stuff, like way more of his life than he was free. So I don't. Yeah, no, I I definitely could see that. Okay. And then the last question I have for you is nature or nurture? I don't like saying nature for most situations solely because I don't really think that that's the case. I don't think that you're born a killer. However, I do think Nico was born a killer, so I'm going to go with nature for that one. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because I definitely think his upbringing groomed him to be like not a pro-social person because none of his family is either but look at his mom she's in prison look at his dad he was in prison look at her siblings they were in prison look at her aunties and uncles and her you know his mom's parents and grandparents and i mean it goes up where like and over you know down and over and oh my gosh like this family tree is extensive but they're all criminals. It, it's. I agree with you. I think the majority of the time we do say nurture, but I think in this case we have enough evidence to show that this is definitely nature and that nurture played a role. I mean, wouldn't you say? Like his surrounding- yeah. I mean, if you're surrounded by criminals that are actively committing crimes and murders and mm-hmm. um, assaults and weapons and all that stuff, you're going to... Yeah, that's your normal. Most of the time, you're then going to be like kind of downplay like, oh, it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. Uncle Bob did it and dad did it and mom did it. And, you know, so all these people that I'm supposed to be looking up to and teaching me like are doing these horrible things. So and why he not? Was assaulted as a child and right. he had access right. to drugs as a child. He was wetting the bed as a child. I mean, so definitely that has everything to do with your environment, but I definitely think that this case, if any case, has a strong nature argument as well. I agree. Yeah. I think it's a bad combination. Oh, 100%. 100%. Him being born into a violent family was not great. (laughs) No, it didn't help anything at all. I mean... I wish we had a case, we haven't come across this yet, where you're born into like a violent family, but then like your environment is really well, you know, like maybe that one person got out 
Do you know what mm. I mean? Like mm-hmm. all of your ancestors are criminals, but your mom wasn't or your dad wasn't or whatever. And so you were actually in a pro-social situation, but then you still ended up committing crimes. So we can be like, oh, it was in his genes, you know? But right. in this scenario, I, I really think it's both. And I think there's a strong argument for both, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Okay, so those are my five questions. Do you have anything you want to add to those five questions before I pose them for listeners? My whole brain is like mush right now because this is just (laughs) a lot. (laughs) So much between his family and his history and I mean of like his own crimes and also his environment like we were just talking about and his mental health and... I mean, there's so many things. One thing I can't get over is that he has a fiance. Basically, the only thing she's claiming is, yeah, he's not as bad as the media says. You know, I mean, there's just so many aspects to this case that just. And then she's like, yeah, but he is manipulative. (laughs) Yeah. I don't understand. Girl, as long as you know, like, (laughs) shit. And it's crazy too because like even like his other wives and girlfriends like some girl got a face tap for him I, I don't... yeah manipulative yeah. <laughs> she, and he's inside i mean he's locked up and he still convinced her to do that like what if she didn't do that like he's still what? locked up you know what i mean i don't know it's yeah it's like you could do anything I, yeah she, his but you know what that's again, he's a product of his environment. He had to beg, borrow, and steal to survive. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. he learned how to manipulate people and even in prison, right? Like you have to stand up for yourself to get your way and to get what you want. So if you think a face tattoo is sexy, well, that's why a few of his girlfriends got face tattoos, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, because that's what Nico wants. And that's why they had related all of them to being like his followers like it's a cult <laughs> it's, oh my gosh so i don't crazy. know how he has that reach in prison but yeah i'm, I'm almost jealous really <laughs> master manipulator <laughs> yeah. i mean <sighs> something he's something if there was ever a pathological trait in a human being it would be <laughs> it would be this one yeah yeah, little Nico's an interesting character. He is Nico Nico. <laughs> All right, addicts. So jump over to our Facebook page and engage with us. Let us know what you guys think about these discussion questions. Do you guys have other comments that you want to add about this case? And uh, do you have, are you sitting there screaming through the headphones wanting to talk to us because you have something that you want to add that maybe we haven't thought of? So I'm going to repeat these questions. To find them, go to Facebook, scroll down. You will see discussion questions for episode number 28. Throw up a comment and let us know your thoughts. Number one, during the commission of the offense, do you believe he remembers what happened and was aware of his actions? Number two, was he competent to stand trial? Number three, since he hasn't had any violent episodes towards others for many years now, do you believe if he continued on this regimen of IMO and therapy, would he be safe to release to the public? Number four, in your opinion, what are his motives for trying to be granted a new trial? And number five, nature or nurture? We will post a picture of him in all of our social media. Uh, Like I said, we're going to put up a picture of what he looked like before and what he looks like now. So you can compare his face tattoos as well as age progression. I will warn you that there are no other photos of him currently other than his booking photo and it's terrible quality. So don't get mad at me. But um, that's what we have access to. So head over, check out those images. Let us know what you think. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on a spree killer that looks like a mix of Donald Fiazon from Scrubs and the American rapper T.I., but with a major butt chin, talks like he's got a mouthful of grills, and has worse face tattoos than American rapper Birdman. If you don't know any of those people, we got you. Go check out our social media pages and website at CrimeAddictsPod. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated.